Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Many of us have heard often the story of Daniel and the dilemma that will land him in the lion's den. But we often actually miss one of the key aspects of this story. We see that Daniel determinedly prays three times a day. And we may think that this just happened to be his devotional pattern. We may think that this is just a story about faithful stubbornness. But actually, Daniel here is not just being independently faithful. When Daniel prays three times a day, he does as faithful Jews did then. Faithful Jews at that time prayed morning, noon, and night, the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. Jews practiced fixed daily prayers three times a day. And when Daniel broke the law, he was insisting on keeping the daily fixed hour prayers even though it meant the risk of his life, it meant the risk of being tossed into the, den, into the lion's den. Although it was against the law, Daniel still, we read, got down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him, just as he had done previously. And the point of this story is not that Daniel, or the only point of the story is not that Daniel was pious or civilly disobedient, but that this Jewish practice of morning, noon, and evening devotions was worth risking his life. That, in other words, was no casual custom. As well as praying before meals, the Jews also prayed three times a day. And many, uh, many Jews prayed twice a day, but even uh, many also prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. And each time when they prayed, they recited the famous Deuteronomy text, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Many devout Jews still pray this confession at least twice or three times a day. Christians, whether we are aware of it or not, have inherited a number of aspects of this tradition. And as Tyndale embarks on the discipline of morning and evening prayer, I want to talk about three gifts and blessings that we find in this practice. I need to tell you that much of what I've learned about morning and evening prayer over the last decades has been from hanging around with monks. And one of the things I've learned about monks is monks have their last service sometime in the evening, and at that service, they dedicate the day past and the night ahead and their future to God. They recite final blessings, and then the monks enter a time of silence. They often call it the great silence. And they fast from words for six to eight hours. For a quarter to a third of the day, they don't see anything. They rest, they sleep, they read, they pray quietly, but they don't say anything. And then they have a morning service. Some monasteries have their morning service at midnight. Some monasteries have their morning service at 2 a.m. I go to a monastery of slackers. 
They have their first service at 4 a.m. And the first words in the service are these. O Lord, open our lips that our mouth might proclaim your praise. O Lord, open our lips that our mouth might proclaim your praise. Isn't that amazing? After fasting from words for six to eight hours, fasting from words for a, for a quarter to a third of the day, the first thing they pray is that their words might give praise to God. Our mouth shall declare your praise. And what this does is it reminds all of us that the first thing that we do in the day and the last thing that we do in the day are very, very significant. My father had a habit of firsts and lasts in his life. Early in the day and late at, the night, late at night, he would smoke a cigarette. He opened and closed the day by smoking a cigarette. And that cigarette smoking defined his life in many ways, and it also defined the end of his life. He had four heart attacks and cancer three times. And of course, he didn't only smoke one cigarette at the beginning of the day and one cigarette at the end of the day. Between those two cigarettes, he generally smoked two to three packs of cigarettes every day. Smoking permeated my father's life, and it permeated our lives literally as well. The clothes, his, ca his car, our furniture, our carpets, our curtains, they all smelled of smoke. Often what we do first and last defines everything that happens in between. Nowadays, many of us have another kind of first and last habit every day. The first thing we do and the last thing we do at the end of our day is we turn to our screens. Some of us even bring screens to bed with us to be nearby just in case, so we can check or respond to our screens. We get up and check our screens in the morning to see what's new, what's developed, what's interesting, what's stimulating, and we check our screens before bed to see what's new, what's developed, what's interesting, what's stimulating. Screens permeate our lives from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. And studies show that most of us now are spending eight or nine or 10 or 11 hours per day with screens, sometimes more than one screen at once. And my point here is that the first and the last thing that we do, you see, often shapes everything that happens in between. And so we need to pay attention to what we do first and what we do last. By allowing cigarettes to become central to his life, my father shortened his life. He was much older than I am now when he died. I know I look old to you, but I don't feel old. <laughs> By allowing screens to be central to our lives, those screens can distort our lives and displ displace important priorities. Many of us complain of being busy, but one reason we are so overwhelmingly preoccupied is because we spend so much time on and with our screens. You see, we cannot keep adding things into our life without displacing other priorities. 
A long time ago, the philosopher Hegel commented on the arrival of another early morning technology in his culture. He said that the morning paper had displaced morning prayer. People were reading the news rather than turning to God. Daniel and his fellow Jews knew that even though God is always and everywhere present, nevertheless, we need to pray at particular times of the day, morning and evening. We need to pray at particular times of the week on the Sabbaths. We need to pray in particular times during the year with annual festivals. And if you look closely in the Psalms, you'll see how often prayer is mentioned connected to a time, to morning, to evening, and night, as opportune places to approach God. By praying early in the day and late in the day, we can sanctify the entire day. This, I believe, is the first gift of morning and evening prayer. It makes our entire day prayerful. When Daniel got on his knees to pray, facing the window that faced Jerusalem, there was something important that he knew. He knew that as he said those prayers, he was praying at the same time with other faithful God followers. He knew that there were other Jews praying at the very same time, and he knew that Jews who had preceded him prayed at that time as well. He was praying then in the company of others. Even if he was alone in the room, he knew that other Jews were praying and they were part of the company. And even though they were not physically there, he felt them spiritually, and this spiritual sustenance helped him and helped other Jewish people in their exile to keep the faith, to maintain their identity, not to be oppressed by foreign laws. This solidarity with other believers is the second gift of morning and evening prayer. For many years, I tried to be a person of prayer, but I found it very difficult to keep the discipline by myself. And one, one day, I vowed before monks at St. Gregory's Abbey in Michigan to be committed to daily prayer. And that commitment helped me make strides in this demanding discipline. I was better able to pray regularly, not just because I had made a vow promising to do so, but also because I knew that when I prayed, my brother monks at St. Gregory's Abbey were also praying with me and praying for me. Solidarity in prayer. I can give you a more down-to-earth example from another sphere of my life. A couple decades ago, I joined a writer's group, and this writer's group met every week. It was an interesting group. One person was writing a graphic novel, which nobody had actually heard of then. They were ahead of their time. This was in the 1980s. Somebody else was writing a romance novel. Somebody else was writing poetry. And I was trying to write a mystery novel, of all things. Now, once I joined this uh, writer's group, this writer's group kept me accountable about my writing. And they helped me to write because every so often I had to show up with a manuscript for them to read and to respond to. I had to produce. But the other thing is that I realized there was another payoff to the writer's group that was very unexpected for me. You see, writing can be very solitary. It can be very lonely, like prayer can be. Sometimes one sits in front of an empty page and wonders, why do I bother trying to do this? 
But after I joined the writers group, when I struggled in front of the empty page, I would remember my friends in the writers group throughout the city of Windsor who were also writing, who were also trying to write, who were also struggling with the very same kinds of issues. And the awareness that they were out there plugging away at their desks as well encouraged me to keep going. And not coincidentally, I completed my first book within a year of joining that group, although I never finished the mystery novel. In the spiritual life, it is also a gift to draw upon and practice disciplines in solidarity and community with fellow believers. When we pray morning and evening prayer, we pray and worship with other believers who do so at the same time. When we pray morning and evening prayer, we pray with the cloud of witnesses, we pray with the communion of saints. And there is power in doing this together and knowing that others are doing it along with us. Do you know that in the early centuries of the church, Christians tried to gather every day to pray in the morning and the evening. Every day at this third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. Look it up sometime in the book of Acts, how often people are praying at the third, sixth, or ninth hour. Those are the hours of prayer, the official hours of prayer. And the early Christians prayed every day, every time that they gathered together, they would pray the Lord's Prayer in the morning, in the evening, at noon. And their preference was always to try and do this together. But if they could not be at the same place at the same time, knowing others were saying the prayer at that time, even when you're by yourself, was consoling. This, by the way, is one of, one of the um, captivating things about the way Muslims pray. We've seen Muslims pray uh, in all kinds of settings, in malls and on airplanes at set times of the day. And did you know that the Muslims learned this form of prayer from a monk? The Muslims are keeping the Christian tradition better than many Christians are doing so. Now, I know it sounds hard to imagine praying together at the same time in the same place, but you know, our brothers and sisters in the Korean church still do this, that many Korean churches in South Korea, and in fact, here in the city of Toronto, gather early every morning to pray. I've gone to some of these services. They're at 5 and 5.30 a.m. They're even more slackers than the monks that I know. It is possible to pray together if it is our priority. And I believe that morning and evening prayer has one more significant gift and blessing for us. It can build character. This is the discipline that empowered Daniel to be bold and courageous. Because of this prayer, he dared to be a Daniel, as we used to sing. I think of a contemporary example that, some, that will be familiar to some of us. As we are aware, every once in a while, lone gunmen massacre people with shocking regularity. This used to happen at post offices, and so we had the cliche going postal. But in recent years, it's happened more often at schools, and we know the names of Columbine, Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook. And when these massacres happen, they fill the headlines and they preoccupy the media for a time, and there's almost a matter of factness and predictability about it all. You know it. We respond to mass shootings with a feeling of here we go again. 
These sensational events briefly make the headlines. The media invade for days of in-depth coverage. We learn intimate details about the victims and the murderers. The perpetrators are scrutinized. Weapons are discussed. People do soul-searching about how this might have been avoided. Memorial services are observed. And then attention moves away as we await the next tragic shooting. But did you know that in the fall of 2006, a group of Christian victims rewrote these predictable scenarios? This is possibly the most famous event in all the history of the Amish Mennonites. The Amish, as you may know, are often sentimentalized. They are exploited for tourism. They're mocked by popular culture. But they prefer to ignore attention being focused on them. And so imagine the discomfort of these quiet in the land when within 24 hours of a terrible shooting at a small school in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, their community was taken over by hordes of reporters, television vehicles, and media helicopters coming from all around the world. And yet in spite of all this, those stubborn, plainly dressed folks did not follow the scripts of previous shootings. Within days, they let it be known that they forgave the crimes, and then they acted out the forgiveness. They visited the shooter's wife, and they shared donations with her and her children and promised to help put her children through college. They showed up at the perpetrator's burial, and they observed that there is nothing remarkable for Christians about forgiveness. They are just doing what Jesus commanded. And the amazing thing was that in all its strangeness and unpredictability and inexplicability, suddenly forgiveness became the focus of the media accounts. But what did not attract attention is how the Amish came so matter-of-factly to forgive. The Amish reported that they had no choice to forgive because the Lord's Prayer asks God to forgive us as we have forgiven others. That petition is reinforced in the verses immediately following Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, which declares that our forgiveness by God is actually conditional on our forgiving others, and that if we fail to forgive others, we ourselves will not be forgiven. The Amish regard the Lord's Prayer as the preeminent prayer, divinely inspired by God. This seems clear and obvious to them since it was taught to us directly by Jesus himself. A young Amishman said, quote, we don't, need, we don't think we can improve on Jesus' prayer. Why would we need to? We think it's a pretty good, well-rounded prayer. It has all the key points in it, end quote. Now, this is interesting because many Christians are suspicious of given fixed prayers. Many Christians believe that only spontaneous, extemporaneous utterances have integrity and authority. Many Christians believe that the Spirit can only move and speak in such circumstances. But the Amish believe the opposite. The Amish believe that Christian humility requires us to pray primarily with words that have been given to us through the Lord's Prayer, the Lord himself, or through church prayer books. They think that making up your own prayers is presumptuous and arrogant. For the Amish, set prayers 
are the valued norm, and extemporaneous prayers are the exception. And the Amish Christians pray the Lord's Prayer several times a day. They may not know that this practice goes back to the early days of the church, that the Lord's Prayer is actually the Christian's first daily prayer. But the Amish, like the early Christians, recite the words of Jesus at every church service. They recite these words of Jesus in the morning, in the evening, and every day at home. They recite the Lord's Prayer before meals, during family devotions, and on any occasion that requires prayer. For example, during illness or traveling. And this devotional practice is often the very first things that Amish, Amish children memorize. As we consider the potential fruitfulness of morning and evening prayer, here we find the third gift. As well as sanctifying our time, making it prayerful, as well as putting us in solidarity with other prayerful people, the third thing such prayer practices offer is that they can deeply transform people. They can change people. C.S. Lewis used to say that we don't pray so much to change God, we pray so that God can change us. The Nickel Mines Amish point to the embrace of the Lord's Prayer as a major factor in their startling act of forgiveness, a response that seems so unlikely that it even prompted worldwide mass media to stop and take notice. To the glory of God, the Father, and the Son. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.